verse of the Dhammapada, which is a beautiful collection of the Buddhist teachings, says the mind is the forerunner of all actions. All deeds are led by the mind and created by the mind. So how can we understand this mind, this mind which creates the whole world? And it's the mind out of which we create the idea of ourselves. What is it? What is its nature? During this very first week of practice, it becomes painfully obvious how often the mind is lost. We basically don't know what's going on. We watch a few breaths and then are seduced by thoughts and images and fantasies. And what's so amazing is that they don't even have to be pleasant. (laughs) You know, we can be sitting wanting to be with the breath, but find ourselves lost in reliving old arguments and hurts and grudges and making ourselves miserable. You've already had the first insight of insight meditation. And that is how difficult the mind is to control. And don't undervalue this insight because it's actually the launching pad or the staging ground for all the work that we do. Understanding that the mind is extremely difficult to control. It's such a slippery creature. You know, with a very simple object like a breath or a sensation, and in just moments, it just slides right off. One thought and a whole train of association follows. It's so amazing to watch is we find that we've hopped on the train completely unknowingly. We don't even know what station we got on at. (laughs) And we have no idea where the destination is. (laughs) It's just all of a sudden we're on this train and it's going someplace and we don't know till somewhere down the line You know, and then we wake up in the middle of some story. Sometimes it's a happy story, sometimes it's a sad story, sometimes it's an angry story. It's sort of like being in a crazy movie theater where they're changing the movie every couple of minutes. 
Yeah, and we're fully engaged in the story. <laughs> it keeps switching on us. <laughs> this is our lives. Yeah, and so this insight, which is really very profound when we actually become conscious of it rather than just unconsciously living it out, this insight that there's nothing as changeable, as quickly changeable as the mind. This characteristic of the mind is not just of this time and place and conditioning. I mean, this is the nature of the untrained mind. In the Dhammapada, uh, there was one whole chapter you know, on this. I wanted to read just a few verses of the Buddha addressing this very issue. Because some of the images he uses you know, are images of those times. And just imagine, as you're listening to these words, one of the, one of the things I find very helpful and inspiring is to actually imagine or remember that they're the words of the Buddha teaching. So it's as if the Buddha is teaching us. Now, in that way, the transmission is extremely direct. He said, just as an arrowsmith shapes an arrow to perfection with fire, so does the wise person shape the mind, which is fickle, unsteady, vulnerable, and erratic. How good it is to rein the mind, which is unruly, capricious, rushing wherever it pleases. The mind so harnessed will bring one happiness. A wise person should pay attention to the mind, which is very difficult to perceive. It is extremely subtle and wanders wherever it pleases. The mind well guarded and trained will bring happiness. Your worst enemy cannot harm you as much as your own unguarded thoughts. And a well-directed mind creates more happiness and well-being than even the loving actions of parents towards their children. And so from this very first insight that we all know, and know now very directly and intimately, that's what we've been working with these past days, from seeing how fickle and unsteady and vulnerable and changeable this mind is, it becomes very clear and very obvious the critical importance, the critical value in our lives of actually training this mind, training the heart, so that it's focused, so that it's composed, so that it's peaceful.
because the world we, cre- we create in ourselves and the world we create outside of ourselves, around us, all has its origin, has its birthplace in the mind. Just as some very simple, timely examples, you know, of, of the power and the harm that can be done by an untrained mind. Saddam Hussein has a thought, let's invade Kuwait. How many lives you know, are lost? George Bush has the thought, let's protect the oil fields. 100,000 soldiers in Saudi Arabia. If either one of them had just noted thinking, thinking, <laughs> it would have been a lot more peaceful in this world. It's so amazing when we really stop to think what happens because of the untrained mind. That's where it all begins, and it's not just in them, it's in us. And so that's what we really have to see. So the question is, how do we accomplish this, this very, very difficult task? The great spiritual genius of the Buddha was that he saw so clearly the problem and also saw so clearly the remedy. He understood that the key to this training of the mind, this taming of the mind and heart, the key to it lay in the development of mindful awareness. It's important to understand these two words together. And there's a very interesting distinction to be made here. There is a very wide spectrum of awareness. There's a wide range in the mind of being aware. Mindfulness is one very special and particular kind of awareness. Mindfulness is a very narrow track in this wide spectrum. It's possible to be aware without being mindful. And yet, because we're aware, we think we're being mindful. And so we find ourselves putting forth a great effort and a lot of energy and actually not proceeding down the right track. There are some very common examples of this that arise in meditation practice. So I wanted to suggest them to you so you begin to get a sense of the difference 
of ways we might be aware but are not being mindful. We're watching the breath. And we watch it for two times, or three times, or four times. And then depending on our particular conditioning, we all have our own predilections, the thought may come, you know, after four breaths, hmm, I'm really doing well. (laughs) Or somebody else might watch three or four breaths and the mind wanders, and the thought may come, I'll never get this, this is impossible. Somebody else might watch three or four breaths with this growing sense of impatience and waiting for something to happen. Okay, I've watched three or four breaths. (laughs) (laughs) Or five or six or ten or a hundred. You know, what's going to happen? You know, is this the whole show? Now, in all of these examples, whether sort of we take a little pride in what we've done, or we're discouraged by what we've done, or we're impatient with what's going on, in all of these attitudes, there's an overlay of self. Oh, I've really done well, or I've really done poorly, or I wish something would happen. And all of those, all of those thoughts and feelings are in a subtle, underlying way, simply reinforcing and strengthening a sense of I, a sense of self. And so it's not really mindfulness. There's awareness that we're aware of the breath, but it's not a mindful awareness. It happens very often as we observe sensations in the body. Very often we can be aware without being mindful. It becomes extremely clear when we're observing pain. And just to see all the different ways the mind relates to the experience of pain. Often there's a reluctance to be with it, a sort of half-hearted observation, where we're holding ourselves back, where there's not a genuine face-to-face looking at and acceptance. And what this creates, what this half-heartedness creates, this holding back, it creates a sense of struggle or a sense of restlessness, because the pain is there, the unpleasant sensations are there, We don't quite want to look at it. And so it's this constant back and forth, and we get agitated. Often with pain, there's feelings of self-pity, where we feel sorry for ourselves, that we're enduring this, or worry, or fear. One, one retreat I did in Nepal quite a few years ago, I was having pretty severe back trouble. 
And Upandita's whole message is, if you die in practice, it's fine. It's, it's no problem. There's even a phrase in Pali for it, which translates dying in harness. It didn't really inspire me. It sort of intimidated me. But anyway, I was kind of struggling with this. It was really, really terrible pain. And I just watched this progression of feelings in my mind. A lot of fear. You know, this, oh, just, oh, I'm crippling myself. I'll never walk again. It just went on and on. Finding how to reach the right balance in being able to open to it, able to be with it, without pulling back, without fear, without worry, and also taking care. And there's ways, there's ways to work with it in a balanced way. Another pattern that we get into with pain or unpleasantness that's more subtle than that, and is also an example of awareness without mindfulness, is when we're watching an uncomfortable sensation, and we're watching it in order for it to go away. There's a kind of agenda in our mind. And I've seen it commonly in my practice. I'll be watching something with an idea in my mind that the watching of it will release it. You know, and because release has become a goal. So then the way I'm watching it is in order for something to happen. Instead of being with it and feeling it in order to see what happens. Those are two very different states of mind. One is a simple awareness of what's there, but with a reaction, with an agenda. And the other is a being there with mindfulness. When we're watching our thoughts, there's, this, there's the same discrimination. And when we're aware of our thoughts, what's going along with the awareness? Is there a sense of judgment? Is there a sense of thoughts are bad and I shouldn't be having them, and if they'd go away, I could get on with my meditation? That's not mindfulness. That's something extra. It's an overlay. Or do we indulge them? And it's interesting just to watch our minds to see all the times of indulging thoughts either out of habit, because we've done it consistently throughout our lives, or even more perversely, by choice. You know, we're sitting here and an interesting thought comes, and there's that some place of choice? No. Good, I'll solve this problem now. You know, well. In both of these, you know, whether we're judging our thoughts or we're indulging our thoughts, either by habit or by choice, that's not mindful, even if we're aware that it's going on. 
even if we're aware that we're thinking, mindfulness is something else. Mindfulness doesn't have this overlay of reaction. can begin to see how this works with our emotions as well. There are so many subtle attitudes in our mind about emotions. Do we get lost in them over and over again? Or do we find that our sittings and our life is just this series of emotional whirlwinds and turmoil where we're over and over identified with our emotions. It's one, it's one habit of mind. On the other side, there's often an attitude around emotions that denies them, or in which they're happening and we're unaware that they're happening. There are some good signals in the meditation that give us feedback about that. Often when there's an unidentified sense of struggle going on, unidentified in the sense it's not a question of pain and we're not just looking at it, but there's something going on and we don't quite know And there's this underlying sense of unease, of struggle. Almost always, there's some feeling there, there's some emotion there that is not being acknowledged. It might be boredom, it might be restlessness, it might be sadness, it might be anger, it could could be many, many things. So look to see when there is this sense of struggle, you know, that's, that's hard to figure out, it's hard to see why it's happening. Step back. Just say, okay, what's, what's the feeling state? Another signal that, that is very helpful is to begin to look at those times when there are are many repetitive thoughts going on. You know, when it's the same thought pattern going around again and again, and you're with it for the 10,000th time, something is feeding it. You know, it's not just a passing thought in the mind. Look to see what's the emotion underneath it. Because most likely there is something there that is not being acknowledged and so becomes the wellspring of those repetitive thoughts. And so as we open to emotions, we have to see, we have to look, what is our attitude? Some people judge the emotions as being good. You know, there are these great storms going on, and there's a sense of, oh, great, this great catharsis, and I'm really cleaning out, and something's happening, and it's dramatic. Other people 
relate to certain emotions as being bad. They shouldn't be happening, and a really good meditator doesn't feel this, and I shouldn't be having this emotion arise. In both of these, there may be awareness. There may be a very strong awareness that the emotion is there. Neither one of those is being mindful. In all of these examples, whether it's with the breath, or reactions to sensations, or our judgments one way or another about thoughts and emotions, in all of these, awareness is present, but it's not the meditative mindfulness the Buddha was talking about. So what is meant by mindfulness? What is meant by mindful awareness? What is this narrow track in this wide spectrum that we're aiming for? How can we find and develop this very special kind of awareness? Meditative awareness, I think, can be best characterized as the observing power of bare attention. Bare, in this sense, means simple, means direct, not judging, not evaluating, not interfering, not commenting, not reacting, just simple, bare, non-interfering. Attention, in this sense, means the observing power of the mind. So we put the two together. Bare attention is that observing power of the mind which doesn't judge, doesn't compare, doesn't evaluate, it just sees very directly and simply what it is that's arising. The Buddha expressed this quality of bare attention in a very short and powerful stanza. It was a teaching to somebody. There's a whole story behind it which most of you have heard the stanza itself actually liberated the person who was hearing it. So listen carefully. <laughs> <laughs> you know, then to go home. <laughs> but it really captures, captures just what this kind of mindful awareness is about. When he said, in the scene, Seen with the eyes, there is just what is seen. And in the heard, there is just what is heard. And in the sensed, that is smell and taste and touch, there is just what is sensed. And in the thought, there is just what is thought. It's incredibly simple. 
in the scene, just the scene, in the heard, just the heard, in the sense, just the sensed, in the thought, just the thought. There is just what there is in each moment. And so what we're really learning is how to uncomplicate our minds, of how to settle into this very profound simplicity. So finding and then strengthening this kind of mindful awareness it's like tuning in to a particular station, a particular radio station, out of a whole range, a whole spectrum of frequencies. You know, there's a lot being offered, and we want just one station. In order to do this, we have to be listening very carefully. We really have to be listening so that when we hit the right station, we know, oh yeah, this is it. This is the track. Characteristically, the Buddha offered some very deep and pragmatic <coughs> understanding of how to find, how to develop this mindful awareness. He explained the conditions, the conditions out of which this track of mindful awareness happens. The first cause and condition has to do with a particular mental factor. I just want to explain very briefly this whole idea of mental factors for those of you who are not familiar with that term. It's a term found very often in the Buddhist psychology, the Abhidhamma, and it simply refers to different qualities of the mind. Different qualities have very specific functions. So mindfulness has the function to notice things. Now, and concentration has the function to be steady. And hatred has the function of striking against the object and greed of sticking to the object. So there are all of these different mental factors. There's one in particular which the Buddha said is very supportive for the arising of mindful awareness. And that is the mental factor of perception. Perception is that quality of mind of recognition of the object. Simple recognition. It's noticing the distinguishing marks of some object and remembering it for future use. Just as a few examples of perception arising on different level, levels. Now we see a color, red. And perception is that quality which recognizes it as red and will remember it as red and will 
recall when we see that color again, oh yes, this is red. You know, we see a horse or a cow. Perception is that quality which picks out the distinguishing form and shape and registers in our mind, yes, this is the shape of a horse. This is the shape of a cow. It can be a very simple perception when we're sitting, the recognition, this is the sitting posture. Or in walking, this is a walking posture. So when we, when we say, I'm walking or I'm sitting, that's the perception factor. Or even more subtly, if we begin to pick out the distinguishing marks of different sensations. Yes, this is pressure, this is heat. The next time that sensation arises, we remember, we know, oh yeah, that's pressure, that's heat, that's tightness. This is all leading someplace. So it's just... <laughs> and it's leading to something that, to me, is very interesting. Perception is not a strong or overpowering factor of mind. That's important to remember. It works like a camera or a tape recorder. It simply records what's happening. Perception is a much lighter factor than mindfulness. Because mindfulness, mindfulness has depth. Mindfulness plunges into the object. It goes deep into the object. Perception is a very simple and easy recognition of what's going on. It has no function to go deep. Okay, we're coming to the denouement of all this. <laughs> this last spring, when I was sitting in Australia with Sayadaw, this is when I was learning about how perception is a supporting condition for mindfulness. And as he explained this, there was a whole piece of the puzzle this meditative puzzle that, for me, fell into place. <laughs> and what fell into place was the understanding that the mental noting that we do in the practice is a function of perception. It's not a function of mindfulness. And this is the reason, as people develop, or try to develop the tool of noting, it often feels like it's getting in the way of mindfulness. And that feeling arises because it's not mindfulness. It's perception. It's just this very light surface, this is happening, this is happening, this is happening, this is happening. 
when we understand the role that perception has as a support, as a supportive condition for mindfulness, we understand the relationship of these two, and we understand that the noting is a function of perception, what happens is that all the heaviness and all the weight that we might have been putting in the noting, because we're trying to use the noting to be mindful, you know, to go deep into the object and explore it and understand it, all of that falls away. And we see that the noting is just this very light factor, you know, in, out, pain, burning, tightness, just, just the lightest, barest recognition of what's going on. It enables us then to actually employ the noting in the appropriate way. And what we find is that as we do it, we just have this very continuous and simple, very simple recognizing function, moment after moment. There's no strain, there's no struggle. We're not trying to use it to plunge deeply. But as it's developed, then as the Buddha pointed out, the perception and the continuity of perception itself becomes the cause for a deeper and more profound mindfulness. So I don't know if you found this as interesting as I found it. But as you play with it in the practice, I think you'll see that it has very significant implications for understanding what we're actually doing. Okay, so mental noting, using this tool, is a function of perception. How does it work? Because there's, there's often a lot of difficulty or resistance or struggle that people have with it. And so I think it's important to understand how it's working, what it's actually doing. The mental noting as perception of what's happening is just like putting a frame around a picture. Now, we put a frame around a picture in order to see it more clearly. Put the frame around, and then what's in the frame stands out. That's what we're doing in the noting. Very simple. Not heavy, not struggling. In, out, lifting, placing. Just the framing of the moment. And once we frame it in that very simple way, then we can begin to examine it more carefully. The noting does something else. It's feedback to us in the moment for whether we're actually being present or not. 
there's a meditative condition which I call more or less mindfulness. So we're kind of mindful. We know we're in the meditation hall. That's something. You know, we, we know we're not in California or Europe or wherever. So we're kind of present. We're more or less mindful, but not really mindful. And the noting gives some very clear signals that this is the condition we're in. If you're sitting in the hall and all of a sudden you find the noting lifting, moving, placing, (laughs) it's telling you right away, (laughs) the aim is a little bit off. What's interesting about this is not that the noting as a tool is not working, because actually it is working. Without it, we could have stayed in that more or less mindful condition for a long time without knowing it. And so the labeling being off is a very quick reminder to, oh, Things are not so clear, things are not so sharp, and we can re-aim. The tone of voice of the note reveals a lot about whether we're simply being aware or whether we're being mindfully aware. Because the tone of the note very often reveals an attitude or a reaction in the mind which we might not have noticed. So we're we're sitting and you can hear in your mental voice thinking, 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 you know, or pleasant, pleasant. Whatever it is, whatever kind of overlay or reaction we're putting on to the experience, we might not know it because they can get very subtle. If we're using the noting and we're listening to the tone, we can tell. Is it simply an awareness that's filled with reaction or is it a mindfulness that is merely noticing what's going on? Very different states. The reason all this is important is that the task we have, which I mentioned in the beginning, of training this unsteady mind, it's a very difficult task. Now, our minds have been wild throughout this lifetime and as the Buddha taught many, many lifetimes. And so what we're trying to do is just start to rein it in a little bit, start to really train it and tame it. And so we want to use each moment, each experience to stay on track rather than to be making a big effort in a wrong way. 
So all of these tools are the things that help us stay on track. Okay, so this mental noting and the factor of perception is one of the conditions for the arising of mindfulness. The second condition, the second cause, which helps mindfulness to arise, is mindfulness itself. Now this may sound a little strange, but actually has quite a important meditative significance. Mindfulness as opposed to perception. Mindfulness is that quality, not simply a kind of bare recognition. Mindfulness is that quality of the mind which looks deeply into the experience, which goes deeply into it, which becomes one with it, which feels it from the inside. Each moment of this going deeply into the object, really being in it, becomes the condition for the next moment of mindfulness to arise. And it's because of this, of how mindfulness itself conditions the next moment of mindfulness, This is how we can understand the whole experience that we have in practice of building momentum. Because each moment that we're really being mindful conditions the arising of the next moment of really being mindful, and the next, and the next, and the next. And so when we get on a roll, It's like there's this growing momentum and strength of this particular quality. And this is the quality that the Buddha said leads to liberation, leads to freedom. (coughs) Understanding this can have a very great impact in how we're relating to the practice. And I've experienced this a lot in the times of my own intensive meditation. It's the feeling of being with each moment's experience not only for just what the experience is, although that's the big part, but in the context of understanding that there is a building process going on. Do you see the difference? Sometimes we can be just just with the moment, but out of any context at all. Or we can be with the moment, with this understanding, yes, I'm with this moment, and this moment is conditioning the arising of the next moment of mindfulness, And so there's this sense of building, 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 building. 
What this does, and I felt it very deeply, it generates a deep and genuine gratitude in each moment for the opportunity to be further building mindfulness. It generates an interest in being with one breath or one step or one sensation because we understand that it's not just being with that, it's also the condition for things growing. Over a period of time, you will begin to experience this very, very clearly. You will be able to actually feel within one breath the sense of the energy and mindfulness strengthening. And then one more breath, and one more breath, and one more breath. And so it generates a tremendous amount of interest and gratitude. And that's what's so amazing about a retreat. It's like we have this, we have this amazing gift of all of these moments to do just this, to create the conditions for mindfulness. The first of them is perception, simple recognition, this, 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 the simple labeling, noting. And the second condition of going deep into it, which keeps building the momentum of that going deep into it, until we are immersed in this world, this world of reality, of phenomena. There's more here, but I think I'd just like to close with a, something from one of Ajahn Chah's books. Ajahn Chah, for those of you who don't know, uh, is one of the great Thai forest meditation masters. And this is from a little, it was actually a talk and then collected into a, a little booklet called A Taste of Freedom. Within itself, the mind is already peaceful. That the mind is not peaceful these days is because it follows moods. The real mind doesn't have anything to it. It is simply an aspect of nature. It becomes peaceful or agitated because moods deceive it. The untrained mind is stupid. Sense impressions come and trick it into happiness or suffering, gladness and sorrow. 
But the mind's true nature is none of these things. Gladness or sadness is not the mind, but only a mood coming to deceive us. The untrained mind gets lost and follows these things. It forgets itself. Then we think that it is we who are upset or at ease or whatever. But really this mind of ours is already unmoving and peaceful, really peaceful. Just like a leaf which is still as long as no wind blows. If a wind comes up, the leaf flutters. The fluttering is due to the wind. The fluttering of the mind is due to those sense impressions because the mind follows them. If it doesn't follow them, it doesn't flutter. If we know fully the true nature of sense impressions, which is every object coming in our experience, we are unconcerned. Our practice is simply to see the original mind. So we must train the mind to know those sense impressions and not get lost in them to make it peaceful. Just this is the aim of all this difficult practice we put ourselves through. First step, seeing this untrained mind, seeing all the ways it reacts and follows and goes after the objects which are arising. Second step is to train the mind in meditative awareness, in mindful awareness. How do we do this? Through the supportive conditions of perception, which is the simple act of recognition, of noting moment after moment after moment, and of mindfulness itself. Going deep into the experience of each object as it arises. This is the taste of freedom. Let's sit for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.